Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pensive Politics with Mr. Watson. I am your host, Christian Watson, and today I have a extraordinary guest, Mr. Daniel DiMartino. He is a Venezuelan exile, the right word, expat, something of that sort, um, who has been very uh, active in America, voicing um, his his opinions and his experiences with the uh, terrible wretched socialism that has taken rampant as run that has run rampant in his home country of Venezuela under the atrocious leader uh, Maduro. Daniel, how are you doing today, my friend? Hi, Christian. Thank you for having me. Absolutely good, great. Um, and so, COVID nineteen has really shook the world to its core. We see all manner of things happening. We see in the Philippines, uh, the, the, the leader over there uh, threatening to kill people who violate, uh, who violate quarantine. We're, we're seeing uh, in Wuhan people get upset over rent uh, and who are complaining that the numbers might be fudged or whatever, uh, what the Chinese are doing. And then you also see in here, here in America, the governor of Michigan threatening to lock people up if they do not abide by the uh, by her dictates and the governor of New Jersey uh, saying that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is above or above his pay grade apparently I didn't know that a public official didn't have to abide by those things but according to him they don't and so my question is in Venezuela where you come from where you have been so outspoken about how is COVID affecting uh, uh, Wido and the freedom movement down there and what what future do you see for the freedom movement in Venezuela? after COVID subsides? Well, COVID is affecting every Venezuelan in a very negative way right now. Uh, The government has attempted to implement a sort of national lockdown. However, that's not really a choice for the overwhelming majority of Venezuelans who need to work to eat, right? Uh, In Venezuela, if you don't work, you die of starvation. So for most people who, who, you know, need to to get out to work, the choice is not really, they don't really have a choice, right? It's either they starve today to die or they just risk infection with COVID and perhaps die, but the likelihood is much less than, than not having food at home. So that's what the government has tried to do, and that's negatively affecting especially the poor. Uh, they put checkpoints in the street. They uh, only allow doctors to like fuel their gas tanks and the military uh, because there's also a gasoline shortage as we speak. In fact, while you see gasoline going for record low prices right now in the United States, Venezuela, right. the country with the most oil in the world, has one of the most expensive gas prices right now. It's about $6 a gallon uh, in the black mm-hmm. market. Uh, bribing military officials to get it. So that's the real market price. So COVID has really changed a lot for Venezuelans, right? It's a lot more repression, a lot more government oversight, and there's really no space for for protests or anything related to, you know, taking back our country. Absolutely. And so how do you, how, how, how do you, where do you see the free movement going after COVID has subsided? Because eventually, it's bound to subside. I'm not sure when. We, the timeline has actually been very uh, indecisive. It's contingent upon the expertise of the current medical intelligentsia, which are, cur- which are currently trying to fig- figure this thing out. Uh, so we don't. it's unknown how long this thing is going to last. But when it does inevitably end, because everything naturally has to have an end, where do you see the freedom movement going? Do you see Wido being able to make strides, as he did, I think, early last year to uh, – galvanize international attention and wrest power from Maduro? Or do you see a very lethargic, limping freedom movement in Venezuela that might not be able to do much of anything at all? 
So I think that it's not really tied to, to COVID, uh, but after it, it passes, we're just going to return to where we were before uh, in the best mm. scenario, I think. And that is um, that White Joe is just going to you know, keep doing what he was doing, which is just calling for more sanctions and perhaps negotiating with the government, with the regime. Right. Um, and I don't think that he's capable of bringing about the change that Venezuelans need to regain our freedom. Um, I don't think he's capable because he has had a chance for nearly a year and a half. And the only thing he has done is bring about some humanitarian aid inside smuggled. And that's all he has achieved. In addition, of course, he has achieved a lot, um, not himself, but the United States has done a lot to, to try to help us. Uh, but that has more to do with the Trump administration's commitment that we would do himself. You know, it could be anyone else and the Trump administration would have done the same actions. Um, right. So my, my concern now is that Maduro is riding the COVID wave of, you know, more repression than ever. Nobody's paying attention to Venezuela until the November 2020 election in the U.S. He's hoping Trump doesn't get reelected. So that when Trump doesn't get reelected, he'll know that Joe Biden is not going to do anything about Venezuela, just like Obama didn't. Right, absolutely, and 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 Obama actually has an atrocious legacy all across South America, uh, you know, supporting dictators and things like of that sort. So he's actually, unfortunately, he he has had the opposite effect on that region's stability. Um, do you, so? Do you believe Guaido needs to go for the freedom movement in Venezuela to have any juice to it? Yes. Uh, and it's not just him. It's that, you see, this is a very smart dictatorship, Christian. And this is something that happens in many countries in the world and people in the free world don't really understand uh, fully. And it's that right. dictators to keep power, the smartest ones, they create fake oppositions. And it's not like everyone in the opposition is fake, but they infiltrate the oppositions with people who are actually loyal to them and they just pass them information. And inside the Waido government, there's a lot of those people. And I'm not saying that Waido himself is. I don't know him personally. I can't attest to him. But I do know <laughs> that people around him are, for, for sure, right? These are people oh, who goodness. have a history of that. They were Chavistas before. They worked with Chavez. Waido himself is open with, uh, to bringing them about in a future government. And, you know... Elliot Abrams recently, the, the special envoy of the U.S. government to Venezuela, was talking about how South Africa did a transition and Nelson Mandela didn't jail anyone and uh, you need to negotiate to do these things. And that's, that's true. But the problem is that in Venezuela, we don't have anything to negotiate with Maduro. What are we going to give Maduro that he wants so that he gives him power? The South African dictatorship was not a criminal enterprise that smuggled drugs into other countries. It was a brutal racist dictatorship, true. But this is a criminal enterprise that is profiting from staying in power. They could leave any point, you know, they, right now Maduro could pack his bags, go to Cuba, all the generals could do the same and keep all their money. Nobody would, you know, catch them in Cuba. But they don't because they can keep making money. And while they can keep making money, they're going to stay. Absolutely. And I think that Waido has shown himself to be manifestly unreasonable. I mean, uh, I'm more than positive that you remember one of the first things he did when he was in office, he began seizing golf courses from the uh, from what he from what they would call the bourgeoisie down there in Venezuela. He began seizing private property. 
this is not someone who really can be negotiated because when we say when we say the word negotiate, when we say the word haggle, when we say the word diplomacy, we are thinking uh, largely within the uh, within the confines and under the auspices of the capitalistic system of exchange. But this is something that these people are immune to, that dictators especially are immune to. And so I think that what you're seeing there is an importation of a lot of Western hopefulness and optimism trying to make its way into the situation. But as you said, it's probably not the best way There's to handle people like There's also a lot this. of collaboration going on, Christian. Um, you know, Spain, for example, has uh, delayed and allowed uh, Hugo Carvajal, who was recently indicted in the United States, and he was due to be extradited mm. to America for drug trafficking. He's a Venezuelan um, official. Um, yeah. He was due to be extradited. They let him escape. There are reports that also Spain's central bank is helping Maduro move money in the international financial system. Hmm. They In Spain, there are tens, if not hundreds, of what we call in Venezuela enchufados, which it's a, it's a Spanish word for the plugged in. People who profited from the regime, took all their gains, and went to other countries to live off the great life. And that's where they're going right now in Spain, because they know in the U.S. they're going to be persecuted. Right. And yeah, exactly. I, um, I know that the Trump administration actually seized the assets of several Venezuelan officials uh, somewhere uh, somewhere in Florida uh, during the first few years he was in office. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, in fact, the first week that Trump was in office, he started taking action on Venezuela. Absolutely. Uh, let me let me ask you a question here before we go on to the next topic. Uh, do you believe that? So, so you believe in free markets and everything, I assume, right? Of course, yes. And, I think okay. that the only way for Venezuela to prosper is to privatize, you know, the oil industry, to dollarize our yes. economy, to stop inflation, and to eliminate all the regulations that destroyed it in the first place, you know, like price controls. Yes. Yes, absolutely. What do you think of the contention that these Venezuelan dignitaries, these Venezuelan officials, they ha- if they have private property in a place like America, whose foundation is the protection of private property as, as a matter of individual and natural rights. What do you think of the argument that even though they're using their private property to enrich themselves and to perhaps find a criminal enterprise in their own home country, uh, they should have the, they, they should, their property should still be considered as sacred as everyone else's property in the country. Well, it's not uh, their property. Meaning, they stole it from someone else. Hmm. Hmm. You know, that's not private mm-hmm. property. Private property doesn't have national boundaries. Mm-hmm. Unless you believe mm-hmm. that rights only exist in the United States and whatever no, happens outside is, is meaningless, which I don't right. think that that's the case. Um, if somebody steals in one country and takes their profits to another country, that's still a crime. Right. Absolutely. It's a violation of natural law. As the, so if, you know, if they had gained their money rightfully, you know, in Venezuela, selling things and making nice profits, you know, that, that would be their property. But that's not the case, right? Right. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. That sounds, that sounds, that sounds, I've never heard it put like that before, but I, that makes perfectly much sense to me as it does otherwise. Uh, so uh, speaking of Venezuela, like you have, you have risen and you, you, you might hesitate to say this term, but I'll say it. You've risen to stardom. Um, not too uh, over the past year or so, mm-hmm. you're advocating for freedom, and <laughs> you, you have advocating for freedom and in, in, in Venezuela and free markets around the world. How has that been for you? Because you you came you came here, I believe you got a full ride 
to go to the university you went to in Indiana. You came here, you know, just someone who had experienced the sheer material horrors of socialistic nonsense. And now you are able to harness the energy of the free market to literally spread the message of capitalism. How has it been for you? And what have you learned so far in your journey of speaking, of appearing on CNN, of going on Fox, of meeting President Trump? What has been the biggest lesson to you that has stood out? Well, well, the biggest lesson, I think, from being able to, you know, having the privilege to speak my, my mind to other people, which is what really is, even though it should be, it should be a right in Venezuela, but it's, it's a privilege, unfortunately, there. Um, it's that a lot of things are just in God's hands, right? And, yes. you know, I never expected to, like, for example, meet President Trump. It's something that I always dreamed about uh, because I wanted to tell him what I thought. Uh, and I had that chance, which was, you know, just uh, unbelievably great. Um, and I, I love talking with people about this. So it's something that I loved from before. And I love doing it now. And I want to continue doing it forever. Uh, because I think that, the, well, at least as long as it's needed, right? I hope that I don't <laughs> right. need to do it forever, right? I hope that socialism just stops existing. But I doubt that that's going to happen. So I'm probably going to be doing this for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's, a, that's an admirable calling, an absolutely admirable calling. What? So you have you've been. I remember I watched the speech you did at a university, and there was this lady in the audience who was trying to grill you about Marxism or something about Marxism. I remember and you, that. I yeah, think, both states. Yeah, 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 both states. Yeah, you had a phenomenal response, by the way. Uh, yeah, an absolutely phenomenal response. <laughs> but we see a lot of people who are right of center speakers on the college lecture circuit and in general in popular media in America being lanced and, and just brutally brutalized by many people on the, on the sort of, I don't want to say, I don't want to castigate the entire left, but a few radical elements of, of the, of the left. Uh, and so you got a little bit of a taste of that. Have, has that, has that same incident been repeated or similar to been repeated in the other speaking engagements you've done or has that just been a one-off thing? And if it does happen, how do you imagine you'll handle it? I have this happen again. Yeah, course. yeah. That's well. That's the only time that it happened, and it honestly was a civil exchange. So I really, I, I thought it was better with the exchange than yeah. without it, um, because I like, I love the contrast of ideas. I love having discussions with people I disagree with. It's actually a little boring when everybody agrees. Um, Precisely. <laughs> so, so that was good. And, but if I were ever to get, you know, someone who, who just doesn't let me talk or, or who's, you know, protesting against me or things like that, <laughs> you know, yeah. I just don't care. You know, I can protest against them too. I like, I join the protest, I just protest <laughs> against them. You know, it's just like freedom of speech. They can do whatever, just don't right. violate my own rights. Um, right. if they do violate my rights and I'll just call the police, you know, that's, that's what the rule of law is. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys, you guys. Yeah, you guys don't play. You guys don't play. You've, you've organized a few protests too, haven't I, you? Yeah. Actually, I'm going to tell you about that. So I did have this. There's this radical leftist group who, you know, I would. They're almost a terrorist group. I would argue. Um, it's called Code <laughs> Pink. Um, I don't know if you've heard about them. They're the ones who occupied the Venezuelan embassy in Washington D.C. for weeks uh, mm. until they were pushed out by the D.C. police and. You know, so these people occupy property. They met with Maduro, their leader, travels to Venezuela and meets with Nicolas Maduro. So these are people who collaborate with a foreign dictator um, and get funds from him. 
uh, to travel there and perhaps who else, who knows what else, right? Um, because they obviously don't have jobs if they can stay for weeks occupying another property. Mm -hmm. So they uh, follow Venezuelans who protest, and I was organizing this protest. We had we had one. Uh, we had like gone. I lived in Indianapolis before, and this guy was just like following us and taking pictures. Um, so we took pictures of him, of course, in, in turn. And there were some cars who started going around the circle where we were protesting. We were not protesting. We were just like showing signs and trying to tell the public about what's going on in Venezuela, right? And this guy was yelling to us, Maduro is the president or whatever. And, and, and crazy, right? This American who doesn't oh, know anything about Venezuela. Uh, Precisely. Just yelling uh, that he supports a dictator, completely outrageous. And I was scared for the next protest, whether they would do the same. So I just, you know, preemptively called the police and told them, hey, you know, this might happen. There's this communist group around. <laughs> They've done this before. <laughs> so, so the oh police know, knows what's going on, you know. Um, and, you know, that's all you can do. They're, they're free to, to do whatever they want. But I do think that the U.S. government should investigate groups if they receive funding from foreign terrorist organizations. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds reasonable to me, although well, let's talk on that point a little bit. So, And you've seen the U.S. government take a similar approach to Chinese companies that have tried to come in and, and take uh, – can't take over, but, but manage major organs and arteries of, of certain essential services like the internet, broadband, things of that sort, yeah. pharmaceutical companies. You've, you've seen the government, U.S. government, and the Canadian government too begin to push those kind of companies out. In your view, because you, you – were you, you lived in a country that is now under authoritarian rule in which the government decides what's acceptable and what's not. In your view, how far is too far before the government begins to uh, encroach upon someone's ability to operate freely in the country, nonviolently in the country, even if they are being funded by or, or supported, I suppose, by a foreign government? How far is too far? Individuals That's a great can... question, and I think it's yeah. a question that we're going to grapple a lot, especially as we get out of the COVID crisis in the U.S. I think yeah. that the public sentiment against China in the United States is going to peak very soon, um, mm -hmm. and there's going to be definitely actions against them. I so I you know I'm very. I'm a classical liberal. I could you could say, which in the United States many people don't understand that term because it's kind of like yeah. conservative or libertarian. Um, but so I believe in natural rights. I believe in prior property, but I believe in individuals have those rights, of course, mm -hmm. not governments. Chinese state-owned enterprises have no rights. They are the tool of a foreign government. They're not the tool of an, an independent Chinese businessman. So I well, do think that yeah. the U.S. government has the reason to block all foreign state-owned enterprises from investing in America if they so wish, right. especially so, if it's from a foreign enemy. Right. So in, in principle, I would agree with you. Individuals have rights. But so uh, every, every government, every institution, whether it's a private institution held in by individuals themselves or held by individuals with, with state authority, is an institution composed of individuals nonetheless. Even the government is an institution composed of individuals that we deem necessary to have to, to give them the monopoly on force. So my question would become this: uh, Is it the government involvement in private actions 
that make individuals who are running what is deemed to be a private service with government help, mm-hmm. does, that, does the government action in that realm make them illegitimate? Because, for example, let's look, let's look at TikTok, right? TikTok is a very popular app amongst folks around our age. Why? I have no clue. It perplexes me. Yeah. It's one of the most annoying things ever. I just can't deal with I, another social media, and that's the whole reason I can't <laughs> download it. Yeah, it's just it's, it just it, it drives me in the upper wall. But it is a very famous, very popular app. People like to spend burn a lot of you know their uh, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy into that nonsense. But anyway, it is essentially a a, a what a, Congress is calling a front for Chinese information gathering operations. But there are still thousands of people that work on the work at TikTok that maintain the app, maintain website, all that kind of stuff. Who are independent of that state-owned influence, even if the app itself is a product in part or in full of that state-owned influence. So, do those individuals not have the same right to a- a economic exchange just because well, the government might? You know, be- if they are state employees, so in this case, um, you know, if it was a state-owned enterprise, which is not, you know, state employees don't have the right to, you know. Uh, impose their ideas upon others, you know, just like teachers in public schools don't have rights upon the students to to push their ideas, right? Um, they shouldn't. They shouldn't. <laughs> they, shouldn't. they shouldn't. But TikTok is a private enterprise. The question is that the owner may share information with the Chinese regime and everything. And if that's the case, and that's a national security concern. And the military is government intervention, but we need a military to protect ourselves, right? And I think every, even libertarians agree with that. Um, yes, so, or, oh, and if they don't agree, well, guess what? China is going to invade us <laughs> or Russia. Right. So we need right. a strong military. Um, the Republic would fall. Yeah. But Absolutely. so there are national security concerns and you need to weigh those versus economic concerns. What's the economic benefit from this? What's the national security concern? And that's the kind of decision that the government is here for to do. I personally think, um, and I, you know, in a democratic society, think we should not allow or information to be taken by a foreign uh, authoritarian enemy that wants to do us harm. Uh, you know, they steal our technology. We need to minimize that. And, of course, that entails government intervention that I'm not happy with, but it's a trade-off, right? Right. Well, yeah, any government intervention that is to preserve people's rights is legitimate, is deemed legitimate by most libertarians, myself included. Uh, but there is concern because um, with, with the sanctions that Trump has imposed, uh, they're not just affecting state actors in China. They're also affecting private actors in America as well. Uh, and and so it's this idea, I think, that the Chinese is this collective enemy that America needs to face. But a lot of us don't realize or understand or the politicians who are making these claims don't realize or understand that the Chinese – are numbered in the billions. There are a few hundred people at the upper echelons of the Chinese state, of the People's Republic of China, of the Politburo, who make a lot of the decisions. But I'm not entirely sure it's very, it's really fair or just to punish the over one billion citizens of China well, well, who may be laboring. The thing is that the U.S. Yeah. government is here to protect the American people, right? Right, uh, should be. So that's the primary goal of the U.S. government. And right. if that's the primary goal, then... To do it, unfortunately, we're going to have to face a lot of hard truths about China. And that is that the Chinese government were benefiting economically a lot from their unfair trade practices. Uh, from, mm-hmm. In fact, there are accusations that some companies, American companies, 
are using slave labor in China from the Uyghur people, the religious and racial minority there. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. unacceptable, Christian. We can, I agree with you. And even if the iPhone is going to be cheaper, we should not allow slave labor to be used. In fact, it's illegal already for American companies to do what about So we just need to enforce current law. Um, well, define slave labor. Do you mean like sweatshops or do, what do you mean? Slave, slave labor? means that you are not there voluntarily. That's all it means. Right. That's uh, wrong. Not necessarily that you are paid or you're not, right? Uh, if you right. can't quit your job, <laughs> then you're a slave. Right. Um, right. I've just, I've heard that term conflated, inflated with them, um, sweatshops. And I think those things are manifestly different, as no, you know. Cheap already, labor is different. Um, yeah. You know, okay. that's, that's free trade and other things. Um, right. But I do think that, you know, human rights are important. And the United States, it's, it's you know, the shining city on the hill. And we should not be benefiting from human rights violations abroad. And we should not also be putting American citizens at risk from a foreign regime that wants to hurt everyone. And if that's going to take some economic cost in the short term, then that cost needs to be weighed against the national security concern. And I think that it will be worth a trade-off. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I certainly hope that our leaders begin uh, contextualizing national security and national security actions within the context of people's rights. Because I think that that's probably the most important sort of political debate that we've been having for the past few millennia, uh, past few centuries uh, in, in this country, whether liberty or security is to be prioritized. I, I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy, but it is still the debate people are having. So I hope that regardless of what happens, our leaders just right, make the this right is about Right. This is about preserving our liberty as well. Um, right. It's this is actually a trade off that makes a lot of sense, because if we don't push back against China, we are not going to be free. I mean, this is an expansionist regime that actually collaborates with Maduro in Venezuela. Uh, they keep them in power with loans and buying their oil. Um, they send, uh, you know, advisors, military advisors to Venezuela in in China. They try to expand on the South China Sea. They uh, support Kim Jong-un in North Korea. It's the same with Russia. There are, There is an international web of dictators that is working together, and democracies are fragmented. And if that's mm -hmm. going to continue, then we're going to lose the fight against authoritarians. So they're going to continue expanding, and we're going to continue going in retreat, and we cannot allow that. Mm-hmm. Well, it will certainly be interesting to see how the geopolitical situation of this plays out. Uh, so last last topic I want to talk to you about the uh, protest in Chile. So as you as you definitely know, and as many people should know, Chile is certainly the pe crown pinnacle, the crown jewel, the paragon of free marketeering and freedom in South America, bar none, That's bar right. absolutely bar none. In fact, if there was any place in South America that I wanted I, I wanted to live, it's definitely Chile. But there is a collect a, a collectivist a collective group of people of of, of so-called oppressed so-called oppressed middle class workers and immigrant workers who have been pushing over the course of the last year up until very recently, and there's talks of this of their push um, continuing after COVID happens uh, against the government due to an imbalance in wealth, an imbalance in wealth distribu distribution, so to speak. Uh, they're saying, uh, why are there impoverished conditions in this country in some circumstances if we have so much material wealth? That's not just. And so they are using an arbitrary sense of justice to uh, demand systemic, systemic changes to uh, the Chilean government. And so far, the president has caved a little bit. He's shaken up his cabinet a little bit. I wanted to know what your opinion on that entire matter was. 
Well, I think that we're seeing the rise, or we saw the rise pre-COVID, um, of radical leftist um, slash feminist and environmentalist movements in Latin America, and especially in Chile. And they were actually successful in scheduling a constitutional referendum to completely rewrite the constitution uh, that was supposed to happen this month. Then the virus came, and of course, there's not going to be a referendum until this passes, which is great because the referendum, the polls were actually showing like 80% of the population were going to support to completely rewrite in the constitution of a country that is doing better than anyone else in the region except the United States and Canada. <laughs> it's completely yeah. ridiculous. Of course, there are a lot of problems in Chile, right? Like in the rest yes. of Latin America, crime is relatively high. You know, it's higher than in the United States, but it's lower than in the rest. But you don't need to completely rewrite the foundation of your nation to fix some specific problems like poverty or crime. Constitutions, you know, or or a piece of paper is not going to change the crime level or the poverty in Chile. They don't need to do that to change the policies. So what I'm concerned is that these radical leftist groups want to rewrite the constitution because this is a constitution that guarantees democracy and free markets. It's written in the constitution. You can't just nationalize things. So I'm concerned that they're just going to want to turn Chile into a socialist state, just like we did in Venezuela. Chavez, the first thing he did when he came to power was rewrite the constitution. And that's Mm -hmm. how dictators perpetuate their power. And what I'm most disappointed in Chile is that this didn't happen because a leftist was elected. It happened because a weak center-right president like Sebastián Piñera, who I liked before, gave in to their demands. And a stupid Supreme Court said that it was constitutional to do all this. It's ridiculous. Right. Right. They're they're at great danger of losing their country. Losing their country to like, throw socialism. It's it's like you know the the same president who should want free markets is you know uh, leading his country into oblivion. Uh, it's it's truly a shame, and I hope that Chileans change their views before the referendum is held, and they give a clear sign that they want changes, but they don't want to destroy their country in the process. Daniel, it's already always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Do you have any last words to say to people before I let you go? I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me, Kirsten. All right. Thank you guys for watching, and I will be with you in the next episode. Thanks.